Um, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Man, I am so encouraged. I am so encouraged. I, I don't, I, you know, we go through periods of times and we can become discouraged, but I am so encouraged this morning. And so I just want to speak for a moment uh, to the climate that we find ourselves in. So much is going on all throughout the world and we, beca- we can become discouraged as Christians. Amen. We can become discouraged. One of the most discouraged, one of the hardest things for us to do as intercessors, follow me here guys for a moment. One of the hardest things that we can do as intercessors is to, is to pray for something and then not see it come to pass. And for us, the, here's the hard part, right? We can all pray for something and not see it happen. But to remain engaged with God through that process of not getting what we thought we were going to get through prayer. That's hard. It's a hard thing as an intercessor. It's the hardest thing we'll ever do as an intercessor is pray for something, not see it come to pass, and for us to not be offended, to remain engaged with God through the process and then say, okay, okay God, I'll pray for the next thing. You know, there's, a, there's examples all throughout the Bible of this. And so I just, want to, I just want to speak to you for a moment about Daniel. You know, we see Daniel and we read the word and we read what he did and we read his, his interpreting of dreams and visions and all of this stuff, right? But think for a moment of Daniel. Think about his life. Think about we're offended because whatever it was that we were praying for didn't happen, whether it's Uh, regarding something in the political world, a healing for somebody that you love or any other thing that we could be praying for that we didn't get. Daniel was a man of prayer. His family was killed. His city was destroyed. It was destroyed. It was destroyed. They burned it to the ground. They burned the city to the ground. Everything that he had known was gone. They dragged him away captive to a foreign city. The different, a couple different times I've read, and they say that he prob- they probably made him a eunuch. And I'm offended at that. I don't like that. The first time I heard that, I was like, that can't happen. But in reality, it probably did happen. It was very common in that day for that to happen. And then they take him, they put him in with every demon-possessed person on, uh, in that city. All the soothsayers, all the magicians, all of these people that were diviners that used demonic powers to see the future. Daniel gets thrown in with them. I think he had a little bit of opportunity there to be offended. More than a little bit of opportunity to be offended. I don't know. I mean, I put myself in his shoes. I don't know if I could even tolerate it. And what was his response? His response was, I don't even want to eat the king's food. I want to keep myself holy. I don't want to engage in, what that, in what's going on over there. I want to keep myself pure for the Lord. And then the king has a dream. I'm going, I'm just, the king has a dream and he says to his magicians, soothsayers, diviners, and Daniel and his friends, he says, okay, tell me what my dream was and what it meant. He didn't even give him the dream. (laughs) Tell me what my dream was and what it meant. And it's Daniel's response that shows us his heart. Daniel responds and says, O king, 
to begin with, he's showing the king honor after the king did all of this to him. How many of us would have the strength to do that? And then he comes back and he says this. He says, I'm not, I'm not so wise that I figured this out. This is, these are Daniel's words. Daniel chapter 2, verse 30. I'm not so wise that I figured this out. God has revealed it to me so that you would know what's going to happen. Daniel remains in this humble position. And so this is the challenge for us. We didn't get what we thought we were going to get. We didn't get what we thought was going to happen as an intercessor. And so we just need to remain humble. We need to be, remain in this place of being fully cast on God. Because that's what Daniel did. It wasn't me. I'm not so smart that I figured this out, king. But God showed it to me so that you would know. And God gave Daniel favor in that place for all of the rest of his life. We have to not be offended. We, we, don't, we don't need to forget, but we have to not be offended. Joseph, 20 years later, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. 20 years later, they show up. And what does he say? He says, he says to his brothers, he says, don't, don't be angry at yourselves for what you've done to me. <laughs> we, I, we, we all know people who have been hurt 40 years ago and, and they're still angry at what, the peop, what people have done to them. And here's Daniel 20 years later saying, listen, don't be angry at yourselves for what you did to me. God did it so that I might be here so that I might preserve life. We have to not be offended. We have to continue to engage God in the process because it's only as we continue to gauge God, engage God through that process that we become useful to him. We, we as Christians, our strong suit is in serving, not in ruling. Our strong suit is, is as servants. And as when we come as a servant, we come with the humility that God wants us to come with and we are able to do what God wants us to do. But when we come as a ruler and we begin to have pride and we get to be built up, we no longer have the strength that we had as servants. God wants us to be a servant. This is why he said, the greatest among all of you will be the servant. Yeah. <sighs> well, that was good. Amen. That was good. Amen. I needed that. Amen. Hey, um couple of words of knowledge. Come on up. Pastor Stacy got a couple words of knowledge last night. We want to, we want to throw those out there. See if there's anybody here that this is you. Go ahead. Um, the first one that, um, they actually all came in kind of a group. And since I don't know medical terminology, I actually had to look them up this morning when I woke up. Um, but I kept hearing, um, thoracic and I saw it was, I believe five and six. So I actually didn't even know what that was. I had to look it up. Um, so does anybody? Thoracic. Thoracic, it's actually the upper portion. Vertebrae. Vertebrae. Five and back. six. Um, Mary? Okay. Okay. Was there another hand over here? And the other one that I saw was um, carotid artery. And I guess that's in the neck. I had to look that up too. <laughs> on the neck. And so anybody who has an issue with has that, an issue with that um, I just believe that God wants to heal. And the other thing that I saw was um, three people in neck braces. 
And so anybody who's having neck pain or has been in a neck brace at any point, I believe that God really wants to, to touch that this morning. So I'm just going to pray. Um, Lord, we just thank you, God. We know that when you give us um, knowledge, Lord, that you are touching people. And Lord, there might be even somebody online right now who that um, fits God. But Lord, I ask in every single one of those situations, Lord God, that your hand would come. We command healing into that thoracic, Lord God. We command healing into the carotid artery that it would be unclogged, Lord. And Lord, we command pain to go in those necks, Lord Jesus. We thank you, God. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing. And we thank you that you are moving, that you are alive here on planet Earth, God. And we will see your signs, wonders, and miracles. Amen. So we ask for all pain yes. to go in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, listen, I want to continue this week. Uh, we're doing a three-part series on the vision of the church, engage God, engage church, engage culture. And you know, we've done this over the past couple of years, but my intention this, this time around is to share a few new verses, a few different verses than what we normally share in regards to our vision and expand our understanding of what it means to engage God, engage church, engage culture. And so last week we talked about engage God. Today we're going to talk about engage church and the title of the message is On This Rock. And so for some of you that know your Bible a little bit, you already know which scripture we're going to go to. And so uh, I want to start with a couple. I want to go through uh, some of the more familiar verses that we talk about quickly, and then I want to get to that verse uh, Hebrews 10, 24 says this, it says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Do not forsake the assembling together of ourselves as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day, the day of the returning of the Lord approaching. And so the scripture here in Hebrews tells us not to forsake getting together as believers. And so let's not forget about doing this. Let's not, let's not put this off because what happens is when we get together, we encourage one another. We speak words of love to one another. We, we prophesy over one another. The gifts of God become in action and we become the body of Christ. We lift one another up. We strengthen one another. The second scripture there is from Acts. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And uh, verse uh, 44, it says they met together daily in the temple and house to house. And so I kind of ran out of room on the slide, but I wanted to put that in there. They met together daily in the temple and house to house. And so what we want to do is we want to mimic what the early church did. We want to mimic what apostles did, and they met together. They met together daily. The least we can do is meet together weekly in the church and house to house, and house to house resembles small groups. And so here's another uh, portion uh, that we share a lot in regards to engaging church. It says in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And so make disciples. Discipleship is the main way that we engage church. Church, the word there is ecclesia. It's the assembly of the believers. Church is not the building. The church in the Bible, when we talk about the church in the Bible, it's not the building. The church is you and me. It's the believers of God, us. And so when we talk about engaging church, we don't want to engage the building. 
We want to engage one another. We want to connect with one another on a deep level. And the way that God wants us to connect, the way that Jesus told us to connect with one another is in this process called discipleship. Discipleship. And so we all need to engage in this, right? Who's your old person? Who's your spiritual mentor? Who is the person who's speaking into your life about how to live what the Bible says? We can all read this, and we all should read this. We all should be reading this. I hope we all are reading this. But, you know, a lot of times we come across verses that are kind of hard to put into practice. When, when the Bible says, you know, this, what does that look like? And so you sit with your spiritual mentor, your old person, and you say, hey, listen, how do I pray after I've lost heart because I didn't get the answer that I wanted to? There, are, there is wisdom all around you. Look to the left and look to the right. You see the, the, the more gray-haired people? There's wisdom all around us, guys. Well, Pastor Tom doesn't have... Very, I think I've got as much gray hair as he does. But there's wisdom. Yeah. Applying... See, knowledge is knowledge. Wisdom is wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. Knowledge is to know something. Wisdom is to know when to apply the knowledge that you have. There's a very interesting theology, and I don't want to go too far down this trail, but it's very interesting. There's a theology that believes, Pastor Steve, you'll be amazed by this. Or you won't be amazed by it, but you'll, you've probably, maybe you've even heard about it before. There's a theology that says that if we go back to the garden, right, the tree of knowledge and the tree of, uh, the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, in the midst of the garden. There's a, th- a theology that believes that they're the same tree. I don't know that I, I believe with this, but just follow me for a moment because it's very interesting. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life are the same tree. And so the theology goes on to say it's all in how we take the fruit as to whether it brings life or whether it brings death. And so if we understand it, right, God said, don't eat of the, don't, I don't want to go too far down this trail, but it's an interesting perspective. Knowledge, unapplied knowledge leads to death. This is why when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were cast out and they eventually died because they had knowledge that was unapplied. They had knowledge that God hadn't given them yet. He told them not to eat of that tree because God wasn't ready to apply that knowledge in their life. And I actually don't believe that they're the same tree because then God said, let us cast them out of the garden and set a sword there because we don't want them to then take of the tree of life. I don't believe that that theology actually holds any water. But the tree of life, wisdom goes beyond knowledge because wisdom takes knowledge and then it applies it. All right. Discipleship helps us in that process. Discipleship helps us to take knowledge, and then apply it to our life so that we can make the right decisions in the right moments. That's wisdom. Wisdom is about knowing what to do when. Knowledge is just knowing something. I can know that E equals MC squared, but if I'm trying to find the length of the room, I'm not going to use E equals MC squared. That's not wisdom. It's foolishness, ridiculousness, and it won't get me there. I got to use my tape measure. 
We need to have a spiritual mentor. We need to engage in this process of discipleship. We need somebody in our life that can tell us, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> we, need, we need somebody in our life that says, that's able to tell us, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And for us to be able to receive that. We can have somebody in our life that tells us, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. We'd be like, that's not discipleship. We need somebody in our life that says, hey, listen, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. And us to say, okay. I mean, I really want to do that. But if you say it's not a good idea, I trust your judgment. You know my life. You know everything I've been through. And if you're telling me that this isn't a good idea for me, I'm going to at least take some time and pray about what you've told me. Moving on. All right, Matthew chapter 16. Let's get into this. It says, uh, we're going to read through verse 19, verse 13 through verse 19. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Who, do, who does everybody, who do the outsiders say that I am? the son of man am. And so they answered and they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, other Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so this is interesting. Jesus has got this little dialogue going on with his disciples. He says, who does everybody say that I am? Who does everybody outside of our little, you know, you guys, what, who do they say that I am? And they, they give an answer. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? You guys are the insiders. You guys know me better than anybody. You guys have been walking with me for a bit. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks up. Simon Peter's always got this boldness going on. And Simon Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, before we get too excited about Peter coming in with the right words, before we get too excited about that, it's fantastic. This is a great portion of scripture. But we have to remember, let's go back to discipleship for a moment. Jesus is discipling Peter. Here he comes in with the right, right words, and Jesus is about to tell him, hey, man, great job. But then in just another couple paragraphs, Jesus is going to tell him, hey, listen, I'm about to be betrayed. The Pharisees are going to take me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. They're going to hang me on a cross. They're going to bury me in the ground. And on the third day, I rise again, I'll rise again. And Peter says, whoa, Peter, just as bold. He's bold here. He's just as bold there. Peter, bold. He says, that can't happen, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So if your old person hasn't told you, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I need to up my game in my discipleship process. I need to be like, get behind me. I've never done that. Never. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't have disciples that are as bold as Peter. I wouldn't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to be really pushed to, to, to say those kinds of things. You know what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. It's interesting. He's already told him that his name is going to be Peter. And so here, when he gets it right, he says, blessed are you, Simon, goes back and uses his old name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. My father who is in heaven, God showed this to you. 
And I say to you, Jesus tells Peter, he says, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter. The word there is Petros in the, in the Greek. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I want to stop right here for a moment. I want to look at this scripture because Jesus is talking about the church. We want to talk about today about engaged church. Jesus said that he would build his church. Who's building the church? Jesus is building the church. Jesus loves the church. Scripture tells us that Jesus died for the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. And so this is where I don't like, I have a very uh, strong disdain for any negative preaching, especially as in regards to the church. Because once you start to talk badly about the church, you're talking badly about the bride of Christ. You're talking badly about that thing that Jesus died for. Jesus died for the church. Be very careful with your words when you start to talk badly about the church. Don't ever talk badly about the church. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. This is fantastic news. Jesus is going to build the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is gates. Think about a gate for a moment. What's a gate? A gate is a primarily a defensive mechanism. Gates are designed to keep people in or to keep people out. And Jesus is saying that I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And the gates of hell, this defensive mechanism, isn't going to prevail against the church. Of course not. If we're, if we're building a great big structure, the gates of the city that's over there isn't going to come and ruin the city that we're building. That wouldn't even make sense. Why is Jesus talking like this? Because Satan's kingdom is without power. He's revealing something to us here in the, in the spiritual realm that we don't, wouldn't understand for I don't know how many years. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Satan only has defensive mechanisms at this point. He has nothing with which he can really truly attack you. On this rock, and so here's today, here's what I want to focus in on today. I want to focus in on three words. On this rock. What rock? What's the rock? He's going to build his church upon the rock. What's the rock? And so I've done a bit of study. There's four possibilities of what this rock is. Four possibilities. So we're going to go through them all. Number one, the first possibility is that he's talking about Peter. Peter's name is Cephas, it's Pet, Petra, Petros. His name is very similar. It means rock. It's, it's close to rock. And so on this rock, I will build my church. In the book of Revelation, it says that the foundation of the city of Jerusalem has 12 stones. And on, the, on those stones are the names of the 12 apostles. And so those names of the 12 apostles on those 12 stones become the foundation for the new city of Jerusalem. And so on this rock, on Peter, on Paul, on, on John, on, on these, on them, God will build the church. It's not the only way. 
See, we make the mistake sometimes of saying like, this is the way, this is the only way. It's not the only way. There's something else that this can mean. What did Jesus just say? He said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus just made the confession of faith. He said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one. Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. God has revealed this to you. On this rock, on your, on your declaration of me being the Christ, of me being God's son, that's what I'm building the church on. Paul says in his, in his letters, he says, there's no other foundation on which man can build but the confession of Jesus Christ, right? And so we, we read this as a very real possibility in other portions of scripture, that it's the confession of Christ that he's building on. So confession of Christ, there's a third one. There's a third one. It's, it's the idea of revelation. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And so there's, there's theologians that believe that it's the revelation power that will build the church. The revelation power will build the church. And so we need to be engaged. The Bible tells us, Psalm 25 says, God will do nothing in first, in, unless he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. And so God is always revealing. He's always revealing what he wants to do so that we're ready for what God's doing so that we can engage him in the process and that we can build his church. We can partner with him in building his church. And so there's, there's this very real aspect that revelation will help to build the church. And the fourth thing that we see here is relationship. Jesus is, Peter is in on this inside. Who do they say that I am? prophet, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? We've been walking together. We've been kind of intimate here. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to me, to you, but my father has revealed this to me, to you. You've come so close to me that you've actually heard my father because you're in relationship with him. He wants to share secrets with you. And upon this, this, this level of relationship, God wants to build his church through that. And so is it one thing? I don't believe that it's any one thing. I believe that it's all four things. And so it is Peter. God will build the church upon, upon the disciples, upon their words. And we have their words and we learn from them. God will build the church on the confession that we have that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. God will build the church on revelation. God will build the church through revelation. He will give us revelation as to what's going to happen and he'll prepare us for what's about to happen so that we can build his church. And God will always build his church through relationship. God will always build his church through relationship. Why did he, what did he have? What was the, th what was the number one thing about, about the, the Pharisees? He says, you don't know me. The Pharisees were, Paul, as, as Saul as a Pharisee was was more zealous than anyone in building the church. And he felt that the people of the way, that these Christians, these early Christians, were going to destroy the church of God. He was passionate for God, but in a, in a bad way because there wasn't relationship. And so time and time again, Jesus keeps bringing up this idea of relationship. And it's only through relationship that God will give us the power and the strength and the ability to build his church. Because if we try to build it Without relationship, we build something that God doesn't want. 
Because our thinking will infect what God wants to do. Because who, who knows the heart of a man? It's deceitfully wicked. No one can judge it except for God. Even man doesn't know his own heart, Bible tells us. But when we stay connected with him through the process, we'll get it right. We'll get it right. Verse 19. This is great. And the keys, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a scripture that we've misinterpreted a lot. And so I, I think that uh, what we read here out of the New King James is a little off. And actually, I've written in my Bible what I think is a better translation because I do read New King James. Uh, and so I've read through different translations. I've read through the Greek and I've come back and I've said, I don't believe that what, when you read this scripture out of New King James on face value, I don't think that that's exactly what it means. Because what it's saying here is that whatever we do on earth will be done in heaven. And that contradicts with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six. And so if we look at what it says in the NARSV, NASB, I'm sorry, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Okay, let's go back just one moment. Jesus said he's going to give us the keys of heaven and whatever we bind on earth will be bound on heaven and whatever we loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. And so if Jesus is giving us the keys of heaven, I don't have my keys in my pocket. They're heaven keys. And so what are they going to do? They're going to do what heaven wants. So here it comes, right? We can't do what we want with keys that we've been given. I can't go, if I have the key to the front door, I can't go open the office door with that key. I have to have the key to the office door to open the office door. I can't open the children's church with the office door or with the front door. I have to have the children's church key. I can't open the kitchen door with the children's church door or the office door. Or the, I have to have the right key for the right door. And so he's going to give us keys of heaven with which we can open, with which we can bind, and with which we can loose. But they're heaven keys. And so we have to be operating within the context of heaven and bringing heaven's will in order to be using the keys or else we're sticking the key in a lock that we can't open. We think we're going to loose things and bind things that God never wanted and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the key doesn't fit, won't open that lock. NASB. So NASB and NRSV are the two more um, scholarly inter uh, versions you can remember that because the, they both have four letters in them rather than three. College level uses NASB and NRSV. And so um, I will give you the keys of heaven what, and whatever you bind on earth shall have already have been bound in heaven. And so I think the Passion Translation puts this the best. Let's read that one. I will give you the keys of heaven's kingdom realm to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven 
and to release on earth that which is released in heaven. I really like that. I really think that this is the best interpretation. And so, like I said, I'll take my New King James and I read this primarily, but I'm going to write in the margin that, hey, I think it's this way. And so, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and you will bind on earth whatever has been bound in heaven. You will release on earth whatever has been released in heaven. And so this lines up with what we read in Matthew chapter six. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole, the whole import here is that heaven is coming to earth and you are the emissaries. You're the ones to bring it. And so now this portion of scripture, if we understand it through what the Passion Translation says, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys and you're going to bring the revelation. You're going to release heaven on earth and you're going to forbid things that aren't of heaven on earth. You're going to have power to do that. And so what is it? I mean, we all probably know some of it. What is not allowed? What is forbidden? Revelation 21, 27, there shall no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. There shall be no curse there. No cowardly, no unbelieving, no abominable, nothing abominable, no, no murderers, no sexually immoral, no sorcerers, no idolaters, and no liars in heaven. All in Revelation tells us. As we read through the Bible, it tells us over and over and over again the things that are not allowed in heaven. It shouldn't be, a, uh, shouldn't be a question to us of what's not allowed. What is allowed? What is allowed in heaven? Righteousness is allowed. Holiness is allowed. Peace, joy, love, goodness, kindness, patience. These are the fruits of, of the Spirit. These are the things of heaven. Gentleness, self-control, healing. The removal of the curse is in heaven. There is no curse in heaven. God wants no curse here on earth. And so we're sent as emissaries to remove the curse. Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one. God has given us, the church, power to release heaven here on earth. And how do we do that? We do that by engaging church. We connect with one another through this process called discipleship, and we learn how to walk this out. How do I have joy? How do I release joy? Jesus walked into a room. Jesus told his disciples, when you enter into a house, when you enter into a place, say peace. And if your peace doesn't rest, take your peace back. How does that work? Can you tell me? Pastor Tom, I'm, under, I'm reading this scripture. I'm not quite getting it. Walk me through this. How does this work? I know how that works. He showed me. I, it's really hard to tell you. It's a lot easier to show you. You want to see how it works? Come here. Let's go to the coffee shop. I'll show you how it works. Peace. And the whole, the whole room changes. You just walk into the place. The room changes. I want to wrap up with this scripture. 1 Corinthians 12 12 through 14. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. For the, in fact, the body is not one member, but many. 
And so we are, the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. There's hands, there's feet, there's noses, there's mouths, there's all of these different working parts. And so we're all part of the body. You're part of the body. And we have to understand that uniformity is not conformity. Uniformity is not conformity. Unity doesn't mean that we're all the same. Because if we're all the hand, who's going to talk? And if we're all the mouth, then who's going to smell? And if we're all the foot, then who's going to, right? You follow me? And so unity is accepting and appreciating one's differences, one another's differences, while working together for a common goal. That's what unity is. Jesus has set the goal. So we're here doing Jesus's goal. Jesus's goal that all would be saved, that none should perish. And so that's Jesus's goal. This is our goal. And so how are we going to do that? We're going to do that by engaging God, engaging church, and engaging culture. And so what does it look like for us to, to walk this out? It looks like Troy being saved. Troy's going to be saved. Amen. Troy's going to be saved. Why? Because we're going to come together as a body of believers in unity, and we're all going to begin to do our part. And when we all begin to do our part the body functions properly, and the gates of hell can't prevail against what God is doing. But it takes all of us. Because if I'm the mouth, and I've also got to be the hand, and I've also got to be the foot, and I've also got to be the nose, and I've also got to be, then I can't do it all. No one's supposed to do it all. We're all supposed to do it together. And so I pray that you would do what God has called you to do better than I've ever seen anybody do it, and 10 times better than I would do it. Because when you begin to operate in your gift, that frees me up to operate in my gift. And there's nothing that I want more than to operate in the gift that God has called me to and given me. I want to I I do his assignment for me. I don't want to do his assignment for Brian. I would get burnt out doing the assignment that God's given Brian. I don't want to do the assignment that God's given to John or George, or Rich, or Trish, or Danny. I don't want to do any of those assignments. I want to do the assignment God's, God's given me. Because when I do the assignment that God's given me, it brings my heart to life. It's life. There is no burden. The burden is easy and the yoke is light. Why? Because we're serving Jesus and we're doing what he's called us to do. There's life there. But when I'm trying to do what God's called me to do and what God's called you to do and what God's called her to do and what God's called seven people to do. Now, six of those things are aggravating me because it's not what God's called me to do. And only one brings life. So let me just, let me just encourage you guys. Engage church. Part of us engaging church, part of us engaging church, we engage church through the discipleship process. Part of us engaging church is identifying the call of God upon our life and stepping into it. As we step into the call of God upon our life, we're going to bring this church higher. We're going to bring this body higher. We're going to bring God's kingdom further. 
you're not going to bring God's kingdom further by you trying to do what God's given me. And I'm not going to bring God's kingdom further by trying to do what God's given you or filling in the gap because someone didn't step up to the plate when God's already put it on their heart. Till we all come to the unity of the body. Ephesians. Good stuff. Hey, on the back of your engage card, it says this week, I will engage in the discipleship process. Maybe you're here. Maybe you've engaged in the discipleship process. Maybe you haven't. I want you, if that's your thing, if you're saying this week, I will engage in the discipleship process. Check that box. One way that you can uh, engage in the discipleship process is identify who your spiritual mentor is, right? And so it doesn't always have to be, it can't, it can't be me for everybody. That's not possible. I can't spiritually disciple 70 people. I can do about 10. And I think I already have eight. So I'm getting full, right? But so it's up to you, hear, hear me. It's up to you as the person being discipled to let your spiritual mentor know, hey, I want you to disciple me. And so a couple years ago, my wife received a little card and it said, hey, will you be my old person? (laughs) What are you doing? What What are you doing? You're making yourself accountable. Yeah. You're saying, hey, I want to get in on this discipleship process We keep saying it. We keep talking about it. We keep talking about old person. We keep talking about spiritual mentors. I'm done talking, and I want to engage in the process. Will you be my old person? You don't have to put that down. Will you be my spiritual mentor? And Pastor Tom brought up a great point years ago. He said, Angelia could be a spiritual mentor to somebody that's 50 years old or 60 years old because of the depth of the knowledge that she walks in as an intercessor. And so the old person in your life doesn't necessarily have to be older than you. It's just somebody that walks with God in a deeper dimension than you do. And and so look around. I'll give you a cue, right? You guys have your your, uh, uh, engage groups card from last semester. All of those people leading those groups, those guys are all great um, old people. They're all great spiritual mentors because they're leading groups. Why are we letting them lead a group? Because we know that they have the ability to be a spiritual mentor. So there's a process that they go through. Number, the second thing on there, the second thing on there is this week I will take my place in the body of Christ. And so if that's you and you, you're, you want to take your place in the body of Christ, you know the fast is coming up, maybe you're going to pray and say, God, reveal to me what it is that my mission is here at Redeeming Love. God, reveal to me, show me how you want me to serve here at Redeeming Love. And then when God gives you something, God puts something on your heart, when, when you're sitting there and you just keep seeing the people walk through the door and you're like, God wants me to be an usher. What is it that stands out to you? Do that thing. What, do you, what is it? What? Years ago, we had somebody here and they were aggravated at the fact that the words didn't get up quick enough, Right? We're on the second or third line of the slide before the slide got up. And so that person turned around and said, you know what? God's calling me to do that because it aggravates me so much. That's God. That's God. I want to help. I want to make a difference and I want to make the body of Christ better. 
I'm not going to complain about what's wrong. I'm going to fix what's wrong. Sign me up. Sign me up. Put me to work. That person came on. They did a fantastic job. Let me tell you, they had those slides going up before the first word was sung. What aggravates you? Serve in that area. That's God speaking to you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The joy is about to pour out right here. Thank you, Lord. Lastly, on the card, it says, uh, Today I follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior for, for the first time. If you're here and you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, if you don't have that relationship with him, I want to invite you to do that today. If you're watching online and you've never made Jesus Christ Savior of your life, you've never entered into this personal relationship with you, I want to invite you to do that today. It's pretty simple. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'll ask you to pray it along with me. Prayer goes like this. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I pray that you would forgive me of my sins, that you would come inside my heart, that you would help me to live for you all of the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, you just got introduced to Jesus the same way you would shake someone's hand when you met them. And so from this point, your relationship has just begun and God wants nothing more than to get to know you better. And so if you check that box and you have your name and your address on the front, I want to send you some information that describes the decision that you've made and what your next steps are. If you're watching online, send me an email at info at redeeminglovechurch.org with your name and your address, and I'll send you the same little booklet of information describing what the decision that you made means and what your next steps are. Amen?